0: Hello, Mr. Ron DeFore, are you with me? Mr. Ron DeFore, are you with me? I'm with you. Welcome to GG in the 561. Thank you so much for your time today. And I know you are very busy, so I appreciate it very much. We are here to talk about Mr. Ron DeFore's wonderful book and so much more. Um, I was intrigued when I saw the book uh, and and the name Ron DeFore because as a fan of Mr. Don DeFore for a number of years, I was very intrigued. And we're going to get to uh, talk about Don DeFore and so much more. But first, let me tell you just a little bit about our guest today on TGN561. Ron DeFore has written a marvelous book, It is filled, and I mean brimming, with great stories, anecdotes, and so much information. It's a real family book (laughs) that you could read together as a family. It's absolutely wonderful. But but also, uh, Ron DeFore uh, is a business executive. He is a lifelong entrepreneur with about 20 careers, he says. So we have much to cover and much to talk about. So thank you again, uh, Ron, for being here today.
1: Well, um, it's a pleasure uh to be with you and your audience.
0: Um first up uh your book I want to, I want to say what the name of it is and while it has this name there's so much more to it uh than what may, it may appear. The name of this great book is called Growing Up in Disneyland. Now, Who wouldn't want to do that, right? But uh, at one point in your life, you really were kind of tired of going to Disneyland, and we're we're going to get to all of that. Um, I I want to tell you, you did this book, and you said it was like a hybrid of really your dad, your very famous dad, Don DeFore, and and you. And as I read through the book, I almost felt like it was like a Neiman Marcus catalog where you have they send out these great catalogs, and in the first part it's uh, all about women, women clothes, and then you flip it over, and the other side is, is men. And I, it made me think about that because of the beautiful way you merge the two stories together. And there's, there's so much, so much in your book. Um, and we're going to talk about the book, and we're going to talk your, about your dad. But first, I really want to talk about your mother. Um, because I was riveted by her story, uh, Marion. And the reason for that was, first of all, she's very beautiful, and she was the singer who made the song, I'm a Little Teapot, famous, and that's one of the first songs I ever learned as a child.
1: Uh, Yeah, a lot of people don't uh, know about my mom. Uh, Many, as you've uh, indicated, I remember my dad from the more than 35 uh, feature films that he was in, co-starred in more than a dozen with some of the Hollywood's greats, you know, John Wayne, Rock Hudson, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis. Um, I could go on and on. But my mom, uh, you know, (laughs) had had a bit of fame herself. Now, it only lasted, uh, you know, maybe five or six years. It was the late 30s and... Uh, early 40s and they got married in 1942 Uh, and in those days it was uh, you know much more accustomed for uh, the wife to you know let go of her career and and uh, but they did that mutually my dad didn't uh, make her do that but during that short career she was the uh, featured singer for Henry Bussey Orchestra and uh, Art Castle and his castles in the air in, in the Chicago area they both toured uh, the country, and they both uh, recorded with my mom as the featured vocalist. I have uh, uh, about twenty of of those uh, recordings, and as you noted, uh, the one that was made famous was "I'm a Little Teapot."
0: I love that; I really do. And I've taught it to my granddaughter uh, huh. when she was when she was little. She's eight now, but when she was little, it's one of the first song, songs songs I taught her. So uh, And your mom went on to, to be a, a very well-known realtor as well later on uh, in her life. I, I found her to be um, very interesting. I watched um, some videos of your family. I watched the interview with uh, Helen O'Connor who came into your home. And your mom and dad were just such a, a great couple. I You could see how much they cared about each other. It was just, it was lovely. It was um, your dad had such a distinctive voice i think he to me whenever he spoke when i really fell in love with your dad was in a, a film called romance on a high season in book you don't he didn't it was his memoirs that you had merged together with your own uh, if you can tell us how you made that sort of happen you had just you had all of his words um already
1: written well, I need to back up a, a bit. Um the uh the title is is a metaphor for my, my life growing up in a Hollywood celebrity family and surviving uh you know so many of the stories that we hear about um kids growing up in in that area and uh, with that wealth uh, don't turn out well. Okay. And and a lot of the books that are put out are kiss and tell and you know they have all these uh, terrible stories and uh, my books the opposite of that I mean I, I had a very good uh, upbringing my parents were uh, relatively conservatives with us five kids and uh, that paid off because uh, you know when I left the house I knew how to earn a living and as you mentioned I, I have a, a, a chapter titled my 20 Qu- careers because I, <laughs> I, I I was successful at most not all but uh, uh, at most and uh, So, I mean, that's part of the story. I've found by the many comments uh, on Amazon and and elsewhere that one of the uh, most common comments is they love the book because it brings them back to a time when things were a lot happier and simpler, and especially in these times, Mm -hmm. regardless of which side of the political fence you are on. Uh I think we'd all agree that, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, (laughs) Things were a lot simpler, and people like to be transported in that when they they read this book. And then you have the added uh, attraction of reading about my dad, Don DeFore, uh, who wasn't a huge superstar. I mean, his name uh, is not like John Wayne, but when you start reading the book, you see that he accomplished a lot more than most people know about Don DeFore. He's got a star on Hollywood Boulevard. P- many people don't know that he was president of the Television Academy. Uh, in 1954 and accomplished what nobody else had ever been able to do before, and that was he sold the national broadcast of the Emmy Awards to NBC in 1954, and uh, they were elated, and so they voted him in as president for another year. One of the people that wanted to meet the guy that was able to pull that off was Walt Disney, and that, that began the Disney uh, connection. Uh, we became very good friends with them. Uh, our, he asked our family to be in the opening day parade in 1955. And then uh, a year and a half later, uh, he was asked to uh, own his own restaurant in Frontierland. He was the only person to ever own a f- food facility inside Disneyland bearing the name of a real person. It was called Don DeFore's Silver Banjo Barbecue in uh, frontierland and thus the title of the book is a double entendre it's both a metaphor for my life but literally for five years of my youth from seven years old to twelve we were down at disneyland all the time
0: now you and some of your friends were uh, kind of scamps every now and then at disney where you would (laughs) hide in some of the rides and i say i've read read the book and, and throw things into the water and, and you, were, you were kids having a great time and those were, those were really cute stories that you shared.
1: Well, yes, uh, I've got uh, three chapters dedicated to our experience in in Disneyland, and uh, the main theme is, you know, what would kids do uh, if they got completely bored with all the attractions Mm -hmm. that the park has to offer? In fact, as you know, one of the chapters is called, gee, do we have to go to Disneyland again? (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, a lot of these stories and stunts that we uh, pulled off,
0: uh,
1: uh, uh, Disney – corporation is not real happy about they they yeah. held up publication of, of the book oh, uh, yeah. but we we finally came to a compromise uh, yeah they well you know and i can understand that they don't want to be oh, encouraging kids today to do what we were able to get get away with back in the 50s
0: of course but it, it you know again it was a different time and it was just good fun but you also did something kind of fun as an adult where after the restaurant had been closed for a number of years, and uh, there was a certain plaque that was made. That's a great story. I really like that story. Yeah, I'll
1: I'll tell you briefly, but in the book I go into uh, detail. But, uh, yeah, my brother and I had always thought it's a shame that there's not some kind of uh, plaque uh, memorializing that unique uh, part of of, of disneyland and i've, I've learned uh, time and time again from disneyland historians and enthusiasts that they love to hear our stories and they love any uh, artifacts or anything from that restaurant because it is it, just a, a really unusual bizarre part of, of the history so we, we i decided one time i'm going to make my own plaque make it look like it's officially uh, Disney, The you know, the right font and the (laughs) Disneyland castle logo and everything was made out (laughs) of brass. And uh, we, (laughs) my mom, my 80-year-old mom, my brother and I wound up uh, going into the park and, and didn't go on any rides. Again, we, we, we're a little bit uh, jaded. We've, we've done everything there, so we just went into Frontierland and waited until nobody was looking and put up the plaque. And it, it stayed up for uh, almost a year, you know. Unreal. And
0: unreal. <laughs> and, and,
1: and there's uh, so we actually had to keep on putting up plaques. But the, the weird thing is, is that after the book was published.
0: Um,
1: I called my brother because he did a lot of the editing. He was very helpful. I said, "Do you realize that we left out one of the other plaques? That the book only talks about placing two plaques, but there was actually a third one, and I just totally forgot about that that one in between. So, if I were ever to uh, do a second ed- edition, I'd have to, you know, update that part."
0: You would, you would definitely need to include that in this great book. Growing up in Disneyland, um, I want to back up just another moment, if we could, to your dad being involved with the with the Emmy Awards in the very beginning and being so responsible for getting that. Um, that was quite a, uh, quite an accomplishment on many levels, not just um, for the, the selling of it to NBC, but but also the the actual venue and. Um, i, I don 't want to give away too much of book because people need to read it because it 's all of these stories are absolutely riveting They're so uh, so well done and and uh so don 't want to tell everything about what, what all your dad kind of went through to to get that even kind of involved a fire department at one time and uh so forth but um he uh also got a little Emmy and then it got broken and then the Emmy uh, Arts and Sciences. They uh, replaced it, and you have a video out there of you uh, unwrapping that Emmy. And it was I found that to be very, very touching. And what people may not know is where the name Emmy came from. Uh, uh, it was actually um, named for the uh, a, a uh, kind of a, a bulb inside movie cameras. Uh, right. That that's kind of with that came before that name came from but the replacement in me is so beautiful and you unwrapping that was I, th- I found that very touching and very much honoring your dad and for his huge huge accomplishment of getting that on the air
1: yes well and l- let me interject these videos that you're referring to anybody can access them uh just go to youtube and type in my name ron d4 and i've got a channel with a number of those including a um uh, a five-minute uh, trailer that I produced—that's uh, kind of all the highlights of the book itself. Okay. So, and also for more information about the book, uh, and, uh, is the book's website, GrowingUpInDisneyland.com, uh, and there you can even order a autographed copy uh, of the book. Oh, Which I'm okay. I finding more and more people are going to, especially because on Amazon, uh, I guess it's it's going well because they're currently out of stock, so it's like oh that you,
0: is that's yeah, great yeah, news.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's good news, and uh, uh, so I I have uh, you know a limited quantity here, but I do uh, uh, sell them out of the house and sign them, and you can have your own personalized. Uh, greeting if you if you want so yeah just go to uh, growingupindisneyland.com if you're interested
0: oh that's great um, as you mentioned your father was in many movies he was uh, in over 30 movies he was um, a very famous uh, neighbor one of the first neighbors that appeared in in television before everyone had a neighbor it appeared as thorny uh, the Neighbor to, uh, on Ozzy and Harriet. And uh, he was also very, very well known for playing Mr. Baxter, Mr. B in Hazel with the incredible Shirley Booth, who was a, an Academy Award winning actress of, of uh, amazing talent. But, but in the first episode of Hazel, Ron DeFore as number seven on the football team made your appearance. You were also on Hazel,
1: right? Yeah, I, I, it just so happened that uh, as my dad was reading the script for the first uh, episode, he noticed that at the end scene, uh, that uh, little Harold, the, the son in the in the show, uh, had to have you know five or six uh, friends his size and his age in football uniforms because that's the what the scene was. And uh, so uh, my, I guess my dad just said to the director, hey, I, I, I'll give you the kids. Okay. And so it was uh, <laughs> me, uh, my cousin, Pat, and also Barry Van Dyke. I was good friends with the, the Van Dykes. So actually... Uh, Chris Van Dyke, the older uh, son, was more my age, but my dad uh, said, "No, Chris is way too big." <laughs> Chris grew a lot faster than most of us, but Barry was the right size, so he's in the scene as well. Well, it
0: was very, it was very, very cute. Um, I like the fact that when you were growing up, all of you had to do chores. Your parents were—they tried in a, in a very uh, trying situation. I'm sure they In celebrity world, uh, to give you, you, you and your, your siblings a normal upbringing. And so you had to earn your own money and you had chores that you had to do. And, and it, it, uh, kind of carried through with you, uh, as you, as you grew up and became this person who has had so many interesting, what too many things to talk about in our very limited time on the podcast today. But, you have had so many entrepreneurial opportunities. You were, I believe, you can correct me anywhere I'm wrong here, but an assistant director on the Steve Allen show. Um, you, were, you, you were for one hour a disc jockey at Studio, uh, at studio 54. Um, you were, this is one of my favorite things, you met a lot of celebrities. You met a lot of rock stars, and all of that is revealed uh, in your book. Uh, growing up in Disneyland, but you were a flying DJ. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Because I really didn't ask you if you wanted to talk about anything oh. in particular of your career, but I found that a really fun thing that you did.
1: Well, uh, and I'll back up. So I I did not finish college. I, I, I uh, completed almost two years at, at the University of Oregon. I, I also... Uh, Did uh, one quarter at UCLA Night School, but you know I wasn't a real academic. And uh, that summer, um, I got a job in the mailroom at KTLA TV in Los Angeles, Channel Five, and I loved it. And it was just uh, I just really loved being uh, in that business. And uh, by the end of the summer, I'd been promoted a, a couple of times up, and. I had a radio show at the University of Oregon and I was interested in broadcast, but you know, I thought do you go back to school and learn about broadcast or you just stay in it. And it, to me, it was a no brainer. I, I'm just going to stay here. So that's what, uh, how I eventually got to be the associate director of the Steve Allen show is I, I joined their staff and I got promoted like five or six times, ultimately, uh, getting to be associate director.
0: Um,
1: and, uh, so it it uh it, all, all all this time my friends were still going to college and and uh so i, I from from ktla I, I had an interim thing that i talk about too too bizarre for me to spend time here to talk about it but then i got back into uh television at at paramount television and um uh, so i had spent quite many years uh, climbing ladders while my friends you know were just finishing college and looking uh for work so uh i uh, i hit my midlife crisis when i was about 26 <laughs> a lot <laughs> a lot younger than 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 most people, and uh, that was uh, you know being unemployed for a while, but then just kind of morphing into uh, what this new weird uh, business that a friend of mine in Malibu had started, and that was mobile disc jockeying. He actually built his own uh, uh, equipment, you know, the, with the two turntables, oh, and this yeah. was this was before disco. This was you know we were. Uh, you know, playing rock and roll. And so I got into being uh, a DJ uh, for a mobile DJ company, you know, for parties. And, I mean, we were doing, like, Linda Ronstadt's house in Malibu and Rod Stewart. Oh. And, you know, some really fun... Fun, uh, p- uh, parties, but mm-hmm. I, it, to me it was just fun because I, all my life I'd been a um, musician, a uh, lead guitar in many bands and stuff. So this was my midlife crisis, you know. I, I didn't look at it as a long-term career. It was just a heck of a lot of fun, partying and spinning records and, and, uh, and so, I uh, This company, Captain Disco, wound up being in the perfect spot when Disco did hit L.A. Um, at, at one point, we were supplying DJs and uh, music to about 25 clubs in the Southern California area. And I had become the head disc jockey. Uh, again, to me, I wasn't taking it seriously. But one thing I did learn at an early age is, whatever you do, do your best. Mm-hmm. You know. And yeah. and so I was having fun. But I, you know, I became very good. And so, right at the height of uh, the disco craze some wealthy entrepreneurs buy this four-story building in Westwood, which is the UCLA community, and they announced that they're going to be opening up a four-story discotheque called Dillon's, and, uh, and they contacted uh, uh, Les, the owner of Captain Disco, and uh, negotiated a contract, and I said, that's me, I'm going to, Head up. And so I, there were like four floors, and I was the head DJ and and, uh, managing all the DJs for that. Two years later, or a year later, it it was uh, getting so popular, they opened up a huge place downtown Los Angeles. They bought a big ballroom with a 30-foot ceiling and they, they spent millions of dollars on all the attractions that would be in there one of them being they put a monorail track up on the ceiling so that you know one of their big attractions would be a flying dj i love that and, and, and when we heard about that <laughs> once again i said less we know who that is going to be and so uh and so for uh you know about almost a year um i was the flying dj at dylan's it became pretty famous as silly as it is i mean
0: wonderful
1: one of the local station the abc affiliate even did a story in fact i think i have that now on on my uh, uh youtube channel that they did a profile on the club and the whole disco craze and then they cut to me for a while and uh so you know it was it was crazy and, and the the thing i love is, is uh i'll, I'll be to, uh, here's a spoiler alert because it's one of my favorite stories in the book <laughs> that that i just hopped from interesting uh dj gigs you know one after another and one of them was australia opening up the largest entertainment uh, center uh, in their country, and they had contacted Les, and uh, I again looked at the contract. I said, "Man, we know who this is going to be." I, they wanted the best DJ in the United States, so I just I just raised my hand, and and so. But anyway, but Les, uh, I, I didn't pay attention to how he was promoting me. I guess he was, uh, you know, just sending them newspaper clips about the flying DJ and all these things, and so. I'm, you know, on this long 19-hour flight to uh, uh, Brisbane, Australia, and, uh, you know, I they had rented me a, a condo and told me they'd pick me up and just drive me there, and I, I remember telling them, you know, I'm probably going to be tired, so I just want to crash. So, um, but <laughs> as I get off the plane, and I'm in this shabby Captain Disco t-shirt and, <laughs> Probably dirty blue jeans and sneakers and stuff, <laughs> and and there's, there's all these camera crews around, and I'm I'm kind of wondering what wonder what uh, some dignitary must be landing or something, and and no, it was the head of the owner, one of the owners of the disco, you know, shaking my hand. He said, "Mister DeFore we have to go inside. They they they, they want to uh, talk to the flying DJ." Oh no! And I'm going, oh God, I'm I'm not dressed for this one, and uh, and the first. Question that comes to me with the microphone in my face. Oh, so Mister DeFool, can you can you explain to us just exactly how you fly?
0: Oh no! And
1: I'm thinking, oh come on! Now Les didn't tell them. I mean, you have, to have a 30 foot ceiling and you know a, a stuntman harness and a monorail track to make that work. So it was just. That was uh, quite a moment. That, I think that's the first time I learned to be a spin doctor, which is <laughs> ultimately what the latter half of my career was in public relations, uh, uh, serving as a spokesperson for various entities.
0: Well, I, I just I loved it, and, and so I really appreciate you talking about it. I, I know you have to go here momentarily, but there's one more thing that I wanted to mention because um, it's just so um, – i really hated to read this about the painting that you had and in the clip that i saw of the um here's hollywood uh, uh helen o'connor coming in and visiting your home and talking about the furniture that your dad made and, and there's so much uh, that your dad uh did make apparently out of different things around your home but the, the painting that was consequently stolen in 2009 from you dragon on parade uh, the actual, it ended up being uh, uh, Margaret King that actually painted that. Right. Uh, was not identified that at the time. And everyone knows the the story, or they should know the Tim Burton film, Big Eyes, about that. And now you don't have it. And I just, I thought when I read that in your, well, again, I'm giving something away there, but because I had actually seen it and taught, your parents talked about it in that clip. And it was so um, so awful that it was stolen.
1: Yeah, um, some people that are old enough will remember that in the uh, early 60s to mid-60s that uh, the Keene paintings were very, very popular, the, the big eyes. Yeah. And, and my dad latched on to that very early on, and we became friend, friends with Walter and, and Margaret. In fact, we stayed with them uh, up at their home in uh uh, just south of the, the Bay Area in San Francisco. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately, I mean, we we still have, uh, I think, about eight or nine uh, of them. I have one here. My brother is an art collector, so I think he has most of them. But, um, yeah, the, the one that was the most valuable uh, was stolen from my parents' house right when we were, uh, the last few days when we were clearing it out after my mom had passed, and and putting the house up for sale and uh, to this day we don't know uh who it was it's still up on the los angeles uh police department's website and uh, it's a big mystery
0: yeah that's that's really a shame there's so much great stuff uh ron in your book and in your history certainly your history and your your father's long career uh that, that Everyone has enjoyed, movie buffs uh, enjoy to this day. That's the beauty of being able to watch streaming and having things on DVD. It's, nothing ever really goes away. It's out there and there are so many great stories. In your book that you have shared with the world and it's it's absolutely wonderful to have all of this captured in growing up in Disneyland there are stories uh, on his dad's side or your dad's side talking about listeners there about Marilyn Monroe there are a couple of really cute stories about that um, that I enjoyed reading many many great stories about you with the stories about you with the Beatles and different celebrities and things that you did and you lived in a rarefied world and and yet, your parents were seemed to be so grounded, and your sister helped uh, at a very young age with orphaned in korea i mean what a what a wonderful family story you have and yeah and
1: I, 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 I let me just uh, interject that, oh, that, that, and make a, a point that I almost made earlier, but i'll make it stronger that my my parents uh, brought us up conservatively now. The, but the, but there was a slight twist to that. If you were to look at the photos of our house, which I have up on my uh, Facebook, I uh, put them up on our Facebook page before, my dad uh, bought two lots, not just one, two lots uh, at the corner of Mandeville Canyon and Mandeville Lane. Now, that's in the heart of Brentwood. And those people that don't know Brentwood, I guess they didn't know O.J., the O.J. story. But yeah. Brentwood is, is right between Bel Air and Pacific Palisades. I mean, uh, yeah. it, it, especially now, it is like mm-hmm. prime real estate on yeah. the planet. And uh, he built uh, a huge house. We had a great backyard. We had a, a tennis court, a pool a uh, big grass lawn, uh a trampoline. So, as a family, you know, we were pretty privileged and had a pretty good uh, you know, house to live on in a great uh, neighborhood, but individually um, they would be very strict with, you know, what they would and it wasn't really giving us anything. Like when I wanted a Fender guitar and amplifier, I had to convince them that i would take lessons. And I had to borrow the money from them, and then I would work it off uh, mowing the lawn and uh, you know painting the house, whatever work needed to be done. I can tell you, I didn't know any other friends that had to do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So in my youth, I was very resentful uh and and angry that that my dad would do that knowing that you know he was pretty well off wow. but the day I left when I was 18 to go off to college and live on my my own uh, it it really sank in I knew the value of money I knew the value of work and uh, tragically there was very little of that Growing up, and I'm sure there's probably not any of that uh, today. So mm-hmm. I know I have friends that I grew up with that d- didn't have that upbringing, that died um, very early, and uh, two of them, right, uh, my best friends right across the street, uh, never left their house, and they died in their 40s in lived mm-hmm. with their parents.
0: Tragic. I will uh, close with, and we'll add some more things, but with one more thing, spoiler, uh, but it's a little one because it's really, I think, very cool. You also had at your home a bell that your mom would ring. And when that bell would sound, you could hear it. quite a distance.
1: It it, it was was not a little one. It was a huge... Uh, train bell from an old fashioned steam engine, uh, my dad's uh, father, my grandfather, was a railroad engineer. so uh, a lot of the stuff in the house had had railroad motif, and that was one of them. So he had the builder uh, build an actual like copula over this uh, bell and a bell tower. At the top of the house, above the kitchen, and so uh, through the second story down to the kitchen there was this big rope. And my my mom could 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 ring it, and we all knew then it was dinner time. And not only us kids, but everybody in the neighborhood d- down you know, a mile away, and they all go, "Oh, it must be six o'clock."
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that so much, and thank you so much. I know that you are limited on time today, and you've given us so so much for the podcast. So, well, Mr. Ronda Ford, thank you.
1: Thank you, Pam.
0: I really appreciate it, and to my listeners. You need to look up both Ron DeFore and his book. Go to Amazon and find it there. Stay with me, Ron, just a second. I want you to add something. Um, uh, and But look up his father's films because there are there were over, over 30 of them. He's wonderful. You can also see streaming. Everything's out there. Hazel, the TV show from the 60s. Um, Ozzie and Harriet. Not sure if it's still out there where he played the neighbor. Thorny, but look look up. Don Defore, it's D E F O R E, and his son that's been with us today, and in his time, so graciously, with DG and the five six one today, Mr. Ron Defore. Now, Ron, before I let you go, I want you to tell everyone how to the best way to connect with you. Of course, through Amazon for for, and you've mentioned it already, but if you would tell us again, best way to to reach out to you.
1: Well, the best way, and I encourage people it's only like a couple bucks extra to to for the shipping for for me to send you one that's personally autographed and and that's by coming to uh growing up in disneyland dot com uh, and you'll see some other things there, but there is a link uh, to to buy an autograph uh, copy also uh to just see a list of my dad's uh film and t v credits uh, I have a website uh, d four d e f o r e dot net
0: okay, great. Everyone, you know what to do. Uh, You can always find our podcast on NorthPalmBeachLife.com, but they're also always available at iTunes, Pandora, Spotify, and too many platforms to name. Appreciate Mr. Don, Ron, for being with us today. I'm Gigi in the 561. You know what to do. Stay with us.